Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke. We'll pick up where our brother Joe left off last week. Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 22. Uh, Let's start with verse 20, I'm sorry. Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning When it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. I want you to note just a couple of things about this passage as we begin this morning. First thing I want you to notice as you look through it, uh, as we look at this entire passage, some of your Bibles may not have a verse 36. Or in some of your Bibles, like mine, it's in brackets. The reason for that is that the translators of your English Bible are telling you that this verse is not found in some manuscripts. Now, lest that cause you a problem... I want you to know that this verse is found 
in the Gospel of Matthew. So what you see there in verse 36 is inspired. And Matthew is, in chapter 24 of his Gospel, relating to us this same discourse. And you see that because everything is similar. He talks about the days of Noah and so forth. It's the same message that Jesus was preaching being related to us by two different authors. But I want you to know that, and I don't want you to be unsettled when you look at verse 36 and you either see a footnote or you see the brackets, you're taken to a marginal reference. It's nothing to be concerned about. It has no impact on the inspiration of Scripture, on the doctrine of inerrancy. But neither do I want to spend a lot of time talking about it this morning, because that's not what we're here for. We want to hear what Luke tells us about what Jesus said, not about textual criticism. And so... If you're interested in pursuing this further, um, I'm preparing a short paper. We'll put it up on the blog. We'll have some copies out in the foyer next week, and you can read all about that. Here's, in a nutshell, what probably happened. You've got someone who comes, and they take the Gospel of Luke, and they're making a copy. Ancient world, no photocopiers. If you want a copy of a book, you sit down with quill and parchment and you start to write. Somebody's copying the Gospel of Luke. Someone who is already familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. And they get to this point, something's missing here. Matthew included... This verse about two men being in the field and one taken and the other other left. And that's not here in my copy of the Gospel of Luke. I'll just scratch it in here after verse 35. You understand there weren't verses back then, but you get the idea. And so someone was trying to harmonize the two Gospels. Now, they didn't need to be harmonized because what Luke says makes perfect sense without verse 36. But that's probably what happened. That's what happens in the transmission of the manuscripts. We need to understand that that has no impact upon our doctrine of inspiration or inerrancy. Because those doctrines apply not to copies that are made later on, but to the originals that came from the pens of the prophets and the apostles. So, don't get thrown by that when you see something like that. And there are a number of places in scripture. Nobody's trying to hide anything. That's why the marginal notes are there. Now, another thing I want you to note before we start working through the passage is the context. Come back up to verses 20 and 21. Note 
what prompted this discussion about the kingdom, especially verse 20. Having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So the Pharisees are once again questioning Jesus, and they're asking him about the kingdom. And as usual, we don't have a lot of this fleshed out here, but most likely they're trying to find some way of trapping Jesus. That's what they're always trying to do. And they're asking him questions about the timing of the coming of God's kingdom, and they were apparently questioning him about signs of the timing of the coming of God's kingdom. Sounds like what goes on today, doesn't it? We've always got people who are fascinated with the second coming and and want to figure out all of the signs and try to know when he's coming, even though he has said we can't. And so they're asking him these questions. We, We know that, not because we have the questions laid out for us, but because of Jesus' answer. Kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. But that's what they're interested in. Now, beginning in verse 22, Jesus turns to his disciples. He's answered the Pharisees, but now he turns to his disciples and he zeroes in on them. And he says, now, look, there are some things that are very important for you to understand about the second coming. And As we listen to what Jesus told them about the second coming, we can infer that signs are not a part of those important things. Because he doesn't say anything about signs. He doesn't tell them to be looking for this to happen, this to happen, this to happen, and then, boom, here I come. Now, in this passage, as Jesus turns to his disciples, this is what he's, he's responding to. He understands that it's not only the Pharisees, it's not only his enemies, it's not only those who are trying to trap him that are interested in these things. His disciples are interested as well. And so... What we're going to focus on here this morning in verses 22 through the end of the chapter is Jesus now addressing not primarily the Pharisees, not rebuking them for their unbelief, but he's telling the disciples what they need to know about the coming of the kingdom. And because we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to know what they needed to know. And there are a number of things in particular that I want us to look at this morning, and I want to tell you what they are ahead of time so that you can't miss them. And the first one is this. Jesus wants his disciples then, and his disciples now, us, to understand that his coming will be unmistakable. And I'll explain to you why that's important. Second thing. He wants us to understand that we will not be ready for his second coming unless we understand the cross. His first coming precedes his second coming, and the work that he came to do in his first coming is essential 
to a proper understanding of his second coming. And then finally, I think you'll see here that Jesus is telling us that we are not ready for the second coming unless he is more important to us than the world around us. If this world is more important to us than Jesus, we're not ready for his coming. This passage says a lot of things, but those three things in particular are what I wanted us to zero in on this morning. Let me just give you one more word of introduction to this because I really want you to get the flow of the argument in the passage. This course, as this discourse, as we have said, is spoken by Jesus to the disciples. Don't forget that. This is for disciples. His own disciples have questioned him about the second coming. People will spread rumors of the coming of the kingdom, the coming of Christ, but the disciples of Jesus must not be misled by them. Because when the Son of Man appears, there will be no mistaking his glory, a glory that contrasts with his early, earlier suffering and rejection by this present generation. This same generation will give itself up to worldly, godless living as it did in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. It will pay no attention to the gospel and consequently the day of the Son of Man will take it by surprise with all its sudden judgment and destruction. If that day brings the redemption of God's people, which it does, it will also bring the judgment of the ungodly. And as a result, the disciples ought not be attracted by worldly desires which will divert them from being instantly ready for the coming of Christ at any time. So the Pharisees had asked Jesus about the timing of the kingdom. And they wanted to know when it was coming, and they wanted to know what signs they ought to look for. Having responded to the Pharisees, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and says, I don't want you to be focused and fixated on signs. When you think about the coming of the kingdom, think about my second coming. When you do that, I want you to be thinking about something else entirely. I want your preoccupation to be in a different place. I want your hearts to be concerned with deeper, soul-affirming, refreshing things than to be like the Pharisees, always looking for the signs. So what are these things that we ought to be thinking about? How should we think about the ultimate coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom. Well, the thing that is most obvious as we're working through this passage is what we're not to be thinking about because it stands in such stark contrast with everything around us. It seems everybody's always trying to figure things out. When is Jesus coming? How is he coming? What are the signs? What's going to happen now and then what's going to happen after that and after that and after that and how can I know 
And every now and then, someone comes along and they think they've got it figured out. And of course, no one's been right yet. Well, let's look at these things that are here. Jesus points to the fact that his second coming is going to be unmistakable. This is really important. Because over and over again, people have arisen claiming to be a Messiah. Claiming to be the second coming. Jesus says, listen. Somebody comes to you and they say, look there, look here. Verse 23, don't go away. Do not run after them. He goes on to talk about lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky to the other. It shines throughout the sky. That's how the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. Everybody's going to know. And there's not going to be any confusion about it. We've just started to um, do a study on the will of God during our Tuesday Bible study. And how we are to understand the will of God, how we are to know the will of God, what we are to focus on in regard to the will of God. And this is a problem there as well. Everybody wants to have some kind of experience that will tell them what God wants them to do. Some kind of impression. You have to interpret events, right? Open, closed doors and that kind of thing. But when you go to the scripture, one of the things that you find is that whenever God tells someone what he desires of them ahead of time, which is, by the way, extremely rare, hardly ever happens. And when it does, it's because there is something very significant happening in God's redemptive purposes. When it does happen, you know what the common um, uh, aspect of it is? It's always unmistakable. You don't have to interpret anything. God speaks audibly. God speaks through an angel. Right? There's something that happens. And you, when, whenever God does something like that, you never see it followed by the person to whom God has spoken to saying, hmm, I wonder if that was God talking. It's always unmistakable. And Jesus is saying, when I come... It's going to be unmistakable. You cannot miss it. This is true, you know, just wherever the the second coming is is described. Over and over and over through Christian history, especially uh, for some reason the last couple of centuries, there have been these people who have pointed to themselves as prophecy experts who spend their lives informing the people of God about the precise nature and timing of Jesus' return and the events of the end times and what to watch for. And time, 
From time to time, even though Jesus said no one knows when he will come, no one knows the day or the hour, they will ignore that and try to predict a date. Why all this preoccupation with the timing of Jesus' return? It's just like the Pharisees. I don't know about you, I don't want to be on the Pharisees' team. I don't want to be like them. If they do something, then I want to give it a lot of thought before I do the same thing the Pharisees are are doing. Jesus says, look, you, you should not be preoccupied with signs because no one is going to miss it when I come. It will be the most public event in the history of the world. We've been all through. We, we've all been through uh, thunderstorms in which, you know, in the darkness of uh, the darkness of night is is momentarily lit up like the day, and the lightning just flashes from one end of the sky to the other. And Jesus is saying, "When I come, it will be like that for the entire world. Every man, woman, and child will know that I have returned. There will not be a need for a newscaster to get on and say, reports that a second coming are occurring, are coming in. Everybody will know. That's the point of what he says. See that in verse 24 when he uses that illustration of the lightning. This is what the coming of the Son of Man will be like. You won't be able to miss it. You you, you see this in the other two illustrations that Jesus gives as well. In Noah's time, you didn't need a newscaster to tell you it was raining when the flood came. No one in Sodom and Gomorrah had to say, hey guys, it's raining fire and brimstone. Strange meteorological event going on here. Everybody knew. They didn't know for very long because they were destroyed, but they knew. And when the disciples ask, where, Lord, where will we look for you? Jesus says, you know when you're in the desert and you see the vultures circling? Verse 37. You know where the corpse is. And he's just using a lot of different ways to say the same thing. You can't miss it. It's unmistakable. My second coming is not going to be something that is going to be subtle. So don't believe anyone who comes and claims to be me because you won't be able to mistake it when I come. You won't need somebody to tell you, I think this guy might be the Messiah. Or I'm the Messiah. Come follow me. And yet what have we seen over and over through the years? We've seen people say, here's my evidence that he has come. I'm him. Follow me to Jonestown. Come join us in Waco. And Jesus is saying, don't believe anyone who comes and claims to be me, because it will not be possible for anyone in the entire world to mistake my return. Everybody will know it. Therefore, don't get hung up on the signs. That's not what you need to be focusing focusing on. 
Instead, Jesus points his disciples to two things that he does want us to look in on, uh, or, or rather to lock in on. And, and the first of them, and this is the second point here, if you're uh, interested in points, Look at verse 25. But first. First he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is not pointing his disciples to signs of his second coming. He's pointing them to the historical reality of the cross. That's where they should be looking. Even though he's talking about the end, even though he's talking about the coming of the kingdom, even though he's talking about his second coming, he points them to the cross. Have you ever noticed how people get all excited about the end times? The second coming, eschatology. They love to show you all their charts. And they spend all their time working out intricate details and speculations about Daniel and Revelation. And they present themselves as experts and yet they give no such evidence of that kind of excitement when it comes to the cross that's a problem when Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom when he's talking about his own second coming he directs his disciples to his present suffering the suffering he is about to endure in his first coming. And he says, don't forget, guys, I have come here to suffer and to be rejected. Now, why does he say that? He says that because you are not ready for the second coming unless you have dealt with the cross. You are not ready for the second coming until you have come to grips with your own sin and your need of a Savior. Jesus' second coming is preceded by his first. And he points his disciples to the cross, which is the purpose of his first coming. His cross, his bearing of our punishment, the rejection that we deserve. This is integral to the second coming becoming good news for us. If we haven't dealt with the cross, trust me, if you haven't dealt with the cross, you do not want the second coming. It will be bad for you. Without the cross, the second coming of Jesus as king and judge is not good news. With the cross, those who have trusted in the Savior who is coming as king and judge, for them that second coming is wonderful news. And it is nothing to fear. It is something that we should desire We should live in the expectation of the the second coming. This is what he's, he's saying to his disciples. You've got to deal with the cross. That comes first. 
It's why there is a first coming. Jesus was born in Bethlehem so that he could go to Calvary. It's all of a piece. And if you don't deal with the cross, then you do not know Christ. You are not in right relationship with his Father. You are still in your sin. And you are under the condemnation of God. And the last thing you should desire is for Christ to appear. Because when Christ comes, and this is what Jesus is talking about here. When Christ comes, what's he going to do? Well, we've already spoken about Matthew 24. Go back to Matthew 24, Matthew 25. What does he describe in those passages? He describes what happens when Jesus comes. The Son of Man appears, and where does he sit? He sits on a throne of judgment. And all the nations are gathered before him. And he separates the sheep from the goats. And those who have not reckoned with the cross... The goats, they do not have a pleasant end. Their end is judgment. The sheep, those who have dealt with their sin through the cross of Christ, they are welcomed into the kingdom of God. The goats have a different destination. You've got to deal with the cross. We will be gathering around the Lord's table in a bit. The reminder to us of why Jesus came the first time and what he accomplished. He gave himself as a substitute for sinners. That if we would repent of our sin, turn away from it, and embrace Christ in faith, then we will become his disciples. We will be children of God. And when that great day comes and Jesus does return, it will be a great day of joy because all of the promises of God will be fulfilled for us and we will be with our Savior forever. There's a third thing that we want to see here as well. And he, Jesus says this in very striking words. I want to direct your attention particularly to verse 31 and what follows. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. What's the point? Well, if you're on the housetop, now, you've got to remember this. Because we don't do this anymore, most of us. Right? Maybe if you're living, if you've got an apartment down in the city, maybe you have access to the rooftop and you can go hang out there if you want to. Most of us don't go and hang out on our roofs. Right? It's a little uncomfortable up there. But back in the day, 
in the first century, in the context in which Jesus is speaking, everybody had a flat roof. And it would be additional living space. And so they'd go up and they'd enjoy the open air up on the roof of their home. And Jesus says, if that's what you're doing, when I come, don't bother to go down into your house and to take anything. When I appear, don't grab your stuff. And then he goes on to say, and likewise, the one in the field. Don't let him turn back either. Oh no, my crops. I can't leave them behind. Well, you can't take them. So don't try. Then he goes on to say, remember Lot's wife. This is what did Lot's wife do? She turned around to look when she wasn't supposed to. She was attached to this world. When that day comes, Jesus says, if your instinct is to hang on to this world, you need to consider what that says about you. It says that you never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've never valued him and his kingdom above this world. When he comes again, what is your instinct going to be? To hang on to this world? To hang on to the stuff I love? Is is this world where my security is? Jesus says, if you do that, you will be judged because it will be evidence that you never really believed in me. It's a good examination of our heart, isn't it? Do you find yourself saying, you know, yeah, I, I love Jesus. I, 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 it's, I know it's going to be great when he comes, but I've got so many things I want to do before that happens. That's a check on our heart. If we love Jesus, I don't care about anything else, right? I want Jesus. I want him to come. I want to say, with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We also need to recognize, don't we, it's a very small percentage of people throughout the history of the world who would say, yeah, I want Jesus to come, but I've got so many other things I want to do first. It takes a prosperous people to say that. It takes people who are living a life that is so unusual in the history of the world. Right? If you go back through history, the lives of most people eh, haven't been that great. Life's a struggle. If we find ourselves thinking like that, we ought to allow it to remind us of just how privileged and blessed we are. Still not right, but we can turn it to our advantage when we say, boy, the the fact that I even have that temptation is a reminder of how good God has been to me. 
Well, he goes on, look at verse 34. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other left. Now, don't get confused here. Jesus is not talking about a secret rapture. He's not. Right? This, these, this, this passage has been used improperly to do that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it's just the opposite. The event that he's describing here is not secret. It is the most public event in the history of the world. No human being will have ever experienced anything as public as this will be. So this is not some secret rapture. Jesus is saying a great separation is going to occur when I return. One will be taken and one will be left. What's he talking about? Sheep and goats. Believers and unbelievers. Those who love this world and those who love his kingdom. Those who love themselves and those who love God. Those who trust themselves and those who trust Christ. J.C. Ryle says about this passage, We should observe in these verses what a dreadful separation there will be when Christ comes again. Our Lord describes this separation with very striking pictures. In that night there shall be two people in one bed, and one shall be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together, and one shall be taken and the other left. The meaning of these expressions is clear and plain. The day of Christ's second coming will be a day when good and evil, converted and unconverted, shall at length be divided into two distinct groups. The wheat and the tares shall no longer grow side by side. The good fish and the bad fish shall shall at length be sorted into two piles. The angels will come forth and gather the godly and then the ungodly. It will matter nothing that people have worked together and slept together and lived together for many years. They will be dealt with at the last according to their faith. Those members of the family who have loved Christ and those members of the family who have loved the world, they will be separated, converted and unconverted, separated forevermore when Jesus comes again. And that is what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's not talking about rapture. He's not talking about some dispensational scheme of of the second coming. He's talking about his final coming. And that's what we ought to be anticipating. We can't get into it all here, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the scripture does not teach a secret rapture. It teaches the second coming of Christ, at which point there will be judgment and there will be resurrection and there will be the eternal kingdom of God established in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what happens next. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Listen to his voice. What he's saying is simply this. Please remember Lot's 
wife. When the fire fell on Sodom, she looked back because she loved this world more than she loved God. She loved this world more than she loved the deliverance that had so graciously been provided for her. There are people who would tell you in the name of enlightenment and kindness that there is no hell and that there is no judgment. I listened to a professor from Union Seminary, which is about the most apostate seminary you can find. And she said, scholars have long known that Jesus wasn't concerned to condemn people to hell. And I found that very interesting. Because the last time I checked my Bible, nobody talked more about hell than Jesus. Others will say, well, Jesus didn't talk about hell in relationship to his disciples. He did that when he was talking to the wicked religious leaders of his day. But let's not forget who he's talking to here. It's those who call themselves disciples. He's not speaking to the Pharisees. Why is he addressing his disciples? Because he loves them. He doesn't want them to go to hell. Don't assume that because someone calls themselves a disciple, that they're a believer. You know who was among the disciples here, right? (laughs) Judas was among the disciples. You go back and you read John chapter 6, you see Jesus preaching to a great multitude, thousands of people who are referred to as disciples. And by the time he is preaching, because of the difficult things he was saying, they all left him. What someone calls themselves is not always a reflection of their heart. The old Princeton theologian, A.A. Hodge, back when Princeton was a good seminary, said this, A man who believes in hell will not shut up about it, but will speak with all tenderness. That's how we need to speak about these things. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, don't go there. Don't go to hell with your arms around the world. Believe me, trust in me, love me, and I will take you to myself. But if you love the world, then you go where the world goes. And that's hell. Jesus says, I don't want you to get what you deserve. I want you to get what you don't deserve. I want you to receive mercy not justice. Richard Baxter said a very wise thing a long time ago. There is a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven in a believer and in an unbeliever. And what he's saying is that the way a believer wants heaven is different from the way an unbeliever wants heaven. The believer prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only above hell. 
To the ungodly, there is nothing that seems more desirable than this world, and therefore he only chooses heaven over hell, because after this life is done, those are the two choices. But the believer chooses heaven above this world, because in heaven, that's where Jesus is. And the believer wants not heaven, but Jesus. He's saying, Baxter is saying exactly what Jesus is saying here. If your arms are around your stuff, if your arms are around your crops, if the place that you really belong is in this world, then you will get what you want. And it won't be heaven. Right now, Brothers and sisters, right now counts forever. What happens to your heart in this world, in this life, determines eternity. Will your heart remain dead and devoted to this world? Or will your heart come to new life evidenced by faith in Christ and love for him because when that happens we begin to let go our grip on this world loosens and we begin to look not at this world but at another world and that's where our desire is That's where our love is, because that's where Jesus is. Father, we pray that that would be true of us. That we would not, Father, hold on to this world, but that we would live moment by moment, day by day, with a yearning for what is not yet. May we look, Father, to the promise. May we be so consumed with love for Christ that we desire to be with him above all else. Father, if there are those here today whose heart is tied up into the world, give them a new heart. Take out their heart of stone and put within them a heart of flesh that they might know and love Jesus. That we all might say with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.